Well, I failed to mention in the outset, the sermon text is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. You may have seen that on the screen even before we started, but Philippians 1, 12 to 26, we're continuing our series there. And as you're turning there, I'll just say, I think it's safe to say that uh, in the last six months, more people than usual have thought about the subject of death. Maybe particularly um, back in February, March, and that kind of thing, when this uh, pandemic was unfolding and news was a little sketchy. There were there were uh, you know, high numbers of deaths even around the world, and just that kind of thing. It was so much we didn't know, and um, so it just sort of forced upon us uh, perhaps something that we're not regularly facing in our lives or not accustomed to. But for some people, that you know, those thoughts of death have been kind of a healthy, healthy contemplation. Um, you know, simply being reminded that we ought not to uh, live as if we are invincible or immortal in some way. Uh, life does, in fact, come with a 100% chance of death. And it's, it's a good thing for us to be mindful of that, to include that reality in the way that we live and the way we think and so forth. But for other people, it's been a very unhealthy fear of death, uh, such that, you know, they've been, you know, paralyzed uh, uh, and imprisoned Almost literally, like people have kind of put themselves under house arrest and their families are afraid to go anywhere outside of the yard. In some cases for maybe legitimate medical reasons or for medical reasons that they would make that decision. In other cases, just paralyzed by fear. But regardless, lots of people have thought about death. And I'm pretty sure that the overwhelming majority of it, of us, uh, want to avoid it. So, so whether it would be a healthy contemplation or whether it would be a fear, our thoughts probably for, for most of us include the thought that we still want to avoid death. But the call to follow Christ actually urges upon us a different perspective than maybe what we would have if we didn't follow Christ. We can truly have joy and confidence in the face of death. That sounds paradoxical, and it is paradoxical, I suppose, um, but for the believer, it's quite natural. Joy and confidence in the face of death. That's the title of this morning's message from Philippians 1, 12 to 26. And so let's look there together now and turn there together now. I'm going to turn even right now as I'm talking. Um, but let's stand, if you are willing and able, just in honor and out of reverence for the Lord who speaks to us in the Scriptures Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12, reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my prison, imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance 
as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray together. Well, Lord, we come always to your word with the conviction that it is just that, that in the scriptures you have revealed what's true about yourself, about us, about the world and our place in it, and how we can be saved from the perils of this life and from the penalty of our own sin. God, we come today with the specific expectation that you'll speak to us the people of Myrtle Grove Evangelical Presbyterian Church on this particular Sunday. You know of all the needs we bring with us, the questions we have in our own minds and hearts, questions even that we haven't asked in our own minds and hearts and yet need to. Lord, would you provoke all of that, minister to us as you know we have need and you have desire to meet. And so we ask that you'd speak O oh Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory. Would you move me out of the way, as always, and just use my voice as an instrument to communicate to the hearts of your people. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated if you're standing. Well, you may recall from last week as we just opened this letter, Paul's writing from prison. He had been put in prison uh, for allegedly causing riots. And uh, Paul sort of tended to have that effect on people wherever he went. Uh, th this particular arrest happened because of what transpired in Jerusalem. It had happened in other parts of the world too. But he had come back from his third missionary journey, had made his way down to Jerusalem, knowing that trouble awaited him there. And indeed, that's what happened. Because of the nature of his message, what, what happened in Jerusalem among the Jews and among pagans in other part of the world was he, his message, the message of the gospel, essentially threatened to disrupt people's worship. And if you disrupt what people worship, you disrupt their way of life. And that's troubling, disconcerting, and people got very upset then, and they do now when that happens. Uh, and, we, and you might just say as a way of footnote, if you, if you observe the way people live, you will discern before too long what it is that they worship. What they live for will show you what they worship. That was true in the life of Paul, and he, and he sort of caused their idols to wobble and, um, and riots ensued. From that, he was put in prison then by the Roman government, and so part of the reason he writes to the Philippians is to communicate 
He's okay, and the gospel is okay. Uh, they don't need to worry that the government's going to stamp out the flames of this young movement called Christianity. It wasn't even called that at that time, but he, he, the government wasn't going to stamp out the flames of the Christian faith and render this whole thing worthless. In fact, it was quite the contrary. His, his message essentially here in the first half of this passage or so is that, hey, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. That's what he says beginning in verse 12 there. So the government is not putting out the flames. The flames are spreading even within the government. It says the whole imperial guard and all the rest know that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, whether they believe that anything about Christ, whether they are changed by that in any way or whether they mock it is not really his point. He's just saying his imprisonment is actually causing the gospel to spread, not to be curtailed even throughout the imperial guard. Christians are not scattering and being silenced because of his imprisonment. Uh, it's, again, quite the opposite. They are becoming much more bold and, and speaking the word without fear, he says in verse 14. And so, you know, basically what Paul goes on to say is that makes me rejoice. Even though it's a hardship on me, and even though others use it for their own selfish reasons and as an opportunity to do me further harm, either way, Christ is proclaimed, so I rejoice. This is the assurance that he, uh, that he wants to give the Philippians. And he says, I'll continue to rejoice because in the end, Christ will be honored and I will be saved. And so whether I live or die, Christ is going to be honored in that. Uh, so we mentioned last week that one of the themes in this letter is joy, and the word for rejoice, uh, or I rejoice and I will rejoice, are two uh, different forms of the word joy. Okay, so all, all of that, the, the rejoicing is essentially expressing joy. And again, it just underscores the fact uh, that Paul is not despairing here in prison and not despairing about the fate of the Philippian church or other churches like that, he's rejoicing because Christ is honored and Christ is proclaimed. And this mindset of Paul really centers around the statement in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you've been a believer for a long time, you know that verse, you probably memorized that verse. Um, it is a profound verse and a challenging one, but contained within that statement really is guidance on how you and I can have joy and confidence in the face of death, as I said, uh, is, the, is the topic of the sermon. And that is, number one, by yielding the entirety of our life to Christ. By yielding the entirety of our life to Christ. And number two, by meditating on the eternal life that Christ has secured for you. I would say, you know, again, sit up in your chair and stir yourself awake a little bit. We start talking about topics that are so common to us as evangelicals, we may miss the, the message and how profound it truly is and how life-changing it uh, intends to be when it's proclaimed. And so let's consider first that we can uh, have joy and confidence in the face of death, number one, by yielding the entirety of your life to Christ. The first part of that statement in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, 
I don't know how that has struck you in the past or how young you were when you memorized that. I thought about the fact that if you had a school teacher who told you, you know, the class to write a short, a short journal entry on, you know, what your ambitions and dreams are or something like that. Um, you know, just one of these short reflective writing exercises. And, and if you wrote, uh, I don't really have great personal ambitions to me to live as Christ. Your teacher, if, especially if she weren't a Christian, would probably say, that doesn't make any sense. Grammatically, it doesn't make any sense. She might say, Christ is a person. You wouldn't say to me, to live is George Washington, or to me, to live is Gandhi, or anybody else. That doesn't make sense grammatically. But, but for those who are acquainted with the scriptures, with Paul's writings in particular, uh, it makes plenty of sense. Because, or at least, we, we understand what it means to Paul. I think the truth is, the challenge for you and me is to really get our minds around what that really means. What it really means to live that way. That life is Christ. But Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I've been crucified. This isn't my life anymore. I had a life. I, I, I did dishonorable things with it, even specifically to the church, to Christ himself. And yet God had mercy on me and saved me. I've been crucified with him. This isn't my life. He lives in me. Now he, we know that verse too, we, we memorize that verse too, uh, but to really understand the depths of meaning requires something of a revelation from the Spirit of God. But for Paul, his life is all about Christ. In fact, Christ is mentioned nine times in this passage alone, our sermon passage today, 18 times in the first chapter. He can hardly open his mouth without mentioning Christ. That's actually instructive to us as well. I think when we think about ourselves as believers, when we talk to other believers or when we talk to others, how uh, natural is it for Christ to just flow out of our mouths because he so fills our hearts? Well, that was the case for Paul. And it's really a key to understanding much of what Paul wrote and understanding what we're called to as followers of Jesus. So the, so the essence of his message here, if we, we kind of connect some dots of what I've already said, but, but Paul's saying, to me, to live is Christ. And so if my imprisonment causes Christ to be proclaimed, I rejoice. If either my life or death causes Christ to be honored, I rejoice. Because to live is Christ for me. It, my life is about him. And so whatever uh, benefit my, my life has uh, to his kingdom or whatever my life does to exalt him, I rejoice in that. And, and meditating on that truth and, that, and trying to get our minds around that perspective um, is really a matter of first priority, I think, for the, for the believer. John Calvin wrote one chapter in his Institutes uh, about the meditation on the future life, and it's really powerful in this particular area. And I, I want to share a couple of uh, quotes from that that are, that are actually quite challenging in and of themselves. 
But he says this, for this we must believe that the mind is never seriously aroused to desire and ponder the life to come unless it be previously imbued with contempt for the present life. Indeed, there is no middle ground between these two. Either the world must become worthless to us or hold us bound by intemperate love of it. Now, I don't know if you got the message there, but to paraphrase, he said, we, we can't really ponder the life to come unless we first develop contempt for this life. That, that, we, that we come to regard this world as worthless. And if we don't do that, this world will keep us bound by an intemperate love for it. Now, he goes on to say immediately after that, that this contempt doesn't mean hating the world. It doesn't mean that, uh, certainly doesn't mean that we become ungrateful for the things God give, has given us in this world. In fact, there's a tension to be lived out in that. But it simply means that there's nothing in this life that has any real value to us. That ultimately, um, He alone is our treasure. That our love is set upon Him alone. And so, uh, we, we might think of this picture, this, this might be a helpful way of illustrating that uh, tension and, and what it is really that we're called to as his servants. We, as, as Christ followers, we are, we are called as bond servants. And let's imagine we appear before the king, standing at the ready, awaiting his request or his command. We, we belong to him. Our life is not our own. We are at his service. And so we stand in his court, as it were, just ready and waiting for his command. How does he want us to express our love for him? How does he want us to serve him by loving others or whatever the case may be? We stand at the ready. And he gives us many things that are necessary for life and for service, many of which are not only useful, but they're enjoyable. Um, and he gives us other good blessings to enjoy simply because He's good and he loves us. So we think about uh, the things that are both necessities and some that are just blessings and fruit of his kindness. But food and clothes and houses and people, uh, the relationships we have, and, and lots of other pleasures and comforts, especially that we enjoy in our culture. And so, uh, you know, boats and RVs and vacations and um, our gym memberships that now we can go take advantage of again. And, uh, you know, our, our, our fitness becomes something of a real treasure and importance to us. But all those good things that we enjoy are gifts of God and necessities for living the life that he's called us to. But the, but the point is that none of those can be allowed to sort of file in and stand in between us and the king. That this space is, is cleared out where we're standing in front of him, ready for his command alone. All, all of the other uh, possessions, relationships, and, and blessings he's given us uh, need to stand back here with us. But what happens, of course is they do make their way in front of us. Calvin said, there's no middle ground here, right? What, but what we do is we treat this space as if it's middle ground and we allow those things that are blessings from God to actually come between us and God. That they divide 
our love that's supposed to be for him alone and it's divided so he gets a little bit of it but we got a lot of these other things we want to spread our love to as well and they they ought not must not be allowed to occupy that that middle ground and so the 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 question and this is actually this this becomes a really practical question for us what is it in your life that you know occupies that middle ground that actually obstructs your view of Christ that actually divides your love and loyalty some the thing that your heart really migrates to without needing much prompting or whatever that you uh, meditate on you know what is it that you um, will work hard for save up money for perhaps but things that just have have you bound by an intemperate love that you could just as blessings from God you are not only free but almost commanded to enjoy them and to thank God for them but you know in your heart as I know in mine what things cross over into this space that isn't supposed to be occupied by worldly affections and as you can name them the task for you and for me becomes moving them out of the way moving them back to where they belong in our lives or getting rid of them altogether that if we can't keep them in the proper place in our own hearts and in our own lives if they must stand between us and the Lord if they must uh, redirect love that belongs to Christ alone onto things of this world uh, we're better off getting rid of them rather than trying to tame them or domesticate them well that's a that's just a brief uh, sort of short small window into what it means to live a life that's yielded entirely to Christ it's hard to even come up with other language that would that would get at what it means to 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 live as Christ to live a life that way that for me to live as Christ but yield it entirely uh, to Christ alone take steps toward being able to say that to me to live as Christ what do you need to move out of the way and call back sort of behind the ropes as it were <laughs> the theater ropes that would that would protect this area that is reserved for your love for the Lord alone the second uh, point here was that we can have joy and confidence in the face of death by meditating on the eternal life that Christ has secured for you this is really the second implication of uh, this verse for me to live as Christ and to die is gain how can we really come to the place where we believe to die is gain I said at the outset I think many of us have thought more about death but probably most of us think uh, we want to avoid it and that which is kind of a natural instinct obviously but the more we can say to live is Christ the more honestly we can say to die is gain and when Paul says I'm torn between the two I, I, I don't really know which is better would I rather go on living because it's not I who's but but Christ who's living in me and that would be more advantageous for you 
if I stayed here with Christ living in me and ministering to you, but would I rather die because then I can actually be with Christ and that would be far better. He's, he's actually torn between the two. And notice that he doesn't emphasize that in death he'll gain rewards, uh, crowns and jewels and eternal peace and, uh, and all of those kinds of things that are associated with eternal life. And then he does emphasize in other places there are definitely rewards uh, awaiting us in eternity. But, but he doesn't even emphasize that here. He, he says that to die is gain because he will be with Christ. That he, he alone is the great gain. All, everything, all the other goodness that we would hope to attain is, is contained in him, is bound up in his very person. Look, let me ask you this. As you think about that, this notion of, of to die is gain, if you could live for 200 years with the health and the energy and optimism of a 25-year-old, but with the uh, wisdom and retirement income of a 75-year-old, if you could live at that same state, that same quality of life, and all that, if you could live for 200 years like that, would you do it? And, and probably the honest answer, most of us would, would, would say a quick yes. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I'd love to go back to 25-year-old energy and love to supplement that with 75-year-old wisdom and income and retirement income. But many people would say yes to that. And that reveals two things. Uh, number one, that we want eternal life. That we, we, this is common to humanity. We actually want to live forever. Not every single person. Some people embrace a kind of worldview or have circumstances in life that would want them not to go on living. But if they could live a quality of life, even like I just described, of a, of a, a prosperous, healthy, 25-year-old American. We'd love to go on living that for a long time. If I said not only 200 years, but 500 years or 1,000 years, many people would say, yes, yes, yes. We want to go on living. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. This is common to humanity. We want to live forever. But here's the second thing that that, that reveals about us that there's a lot we love about this world. There's a lot that we love about this world. And it's true of you and it's true of me too, by the way. I've suggested before that many in the American church kind of unconsciously think uh, as, uh, of heaven or as eternity as a really good consolation prize. I mean, like a really, really good consolation prize. Like we, we don't doubt it's good and I'm glad that, that, that that's what awaits me. But I want to like... I want to live good and long here on this earth because there's a lot of stuff uh, that I love about this. I want to soak up all the pleasures on this earth and then heaven will be like this great bonus package. Now, again, we wouldn't probably come right out and say it that way, but we live as if that's true. Um, it was, I had a conversation recently with somebody about this and I know how common this is to Christians or whatever, but talking about, um, you know, some, some uh, girls who didn't want to, like the thought of Jesus coming back was not so inviting or encouraging immediately because they, 
they, they want to get married. They look forward to getting married and they look forward to all kinds of other things in life. I mean, it's, it's, I chuckle because I've actually heard that before. Like that's a really common kind of story, but it's that sort of thing. In other words, that we, there are things we love about this world and, and we think heaven's going to be the bonus package. But again, the truth is that those longings, that the, the joy that we expect to receive from something like marriage or something like um, retirement or something like a trip to uh, the Caribbean or whatever it is that we expect to derive pleasure and joy from um, those the satisfaction of that pales in comparison to the joy that we'll experience when we are with Christ and see that's really the point we need to we need to try to get our minds to lay hold of is that um, all of these longings of our heart point us to, to something that is stored up for those who would believe because of what Christ has done, that he has secured um, in all, of the, all of the joys and, and satisfactions, all the things that we would desire and the degrees of our desire. He's, he's a, secured something for us immeasurably better than that. And, that, and that's not simply um, kind of taking our concepts of goodness and joy and just projecting them out infinitely or whatever. That is a reality about what Christ has done. And that needs to become our meditation. Even turning to places in the scripture like the end of Revelation where there would be some, some little pictures of, of heaven, that it becomes our meditation of what's prepared for us, that we even become conscious of when I have a desire for something in this world, what far greater desire might that point to that is to be realized in the person of Jesus and in the presence of Jesus when, when we're with him? How might that change, number one, our expressions of gratitude, our expressions of praise, and even change the level of desire we have for things of this world uh, or love for them? I'm going to kind of wrap up here with um, one other quote from Calvin's Meditation on the Future Life. And, uh, and then just a few other remarks here. But he says, let us consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and the final resurrection. I share that quote because I think he's right, but I think there's a great dissonance in your head and mine about that. That, that life is good enough on this earth, especially if you're American. Um, so we're not necessarily joyfully awaiting the day of death. We might be thankful that beyond death, uh, there are things awaiting us about which we can be joyful. But we have objects of our love and, and adoration that actually have cluttered the space between us and Christ and they, they actually obstruct our view of his glory. And they end up consuming, in some cases, 
all of our affection, that we have very little really left to set upon him. And again, the challenge for you and me is to begin to identify what those are, to move them out of, way, out of the way, to get them in their proper place so that we can meditate upon the glory of his person and presence that awaits us um, and that we could move toward truly being able to say, it's not I who live, Christ lives in me. And so to live is Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that uh, this, this word is challenging, not only because what it calls us to, or maybe how it calls us to respond, but it's really even hard to get our minds around what it means to live a life that entirely surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And God, we just say today, we want to want that. And we want to pursue that. Oh Lord, would you help us even now to identify the people that we love more than Christ the possessions, the pastimes, the aspirations and dreams, the things that we imagine, what would it be like if one day we could attain certain things? Would you help us identify those that occupy too big of a place in our lives, that, that occupy a middle ground that really doesn't exist. Would you help us to move out of the way uh, those things of this world that aren't worthy of our love or that aren't worthy anyway of the, of the love that's independent of you and your goodness to us. Help us understand that by your spirit and help us respond in Jesus' name. Amen.